0: 17. Jesus Christ like his brothers in every way through suffering. Like his brothers in every way through suffering. David and Robert were Scottish brothers. Both had brilliant minds but that's where the resemblance ended. David, the, elder, the, the older brother, was quiet and studious. He spent most of his leisure time at home helping with family chores. David was also a devoted Christian. Too much so in the opinion of Robert. One day Robert came home from an evening of reveling and he found David kneeling in prayer. I heard you call my name, he sneered. Am I really that bad? David tried to explain, we are all sinners and we need to trust in Christ. Robert shrugged and excused himself from that conversation. A door of opportunity swung wide for Robert when he enrolled in the University of Edinburgh. His talents for languages, drawing, music, and poetry brought him many awards. And his professors predicted great fame for this young man. Back home, David languished languished in, in illness. But he continued to pray for Robert until he died. And then, Robert became a Christian. And the years ahead, Robert grew in the Lord until he became the most beloved Presbyterian minister minister in Scotland and the British Isles. At 23, he became pastor of the 4,000 members St. Peter's Church of Dundee. Of course, this is David McCain. But his ministry lasted over only seven years and at that time he became known as the holiest man in scotland his church was crowded hours ahead of time by people anxious to hear him explain the scriptures he developed some lung disease and he died at a young age but throughout his illness, even in his dying moments, he talked about the one whom his brother had helped him to love. Here we see a brother on his knees praying with sincere intercession for another. And eventually God was pleased to hear his prayers and saved Robert through grace. Grace. But the intercession of david for robert was made in the name of christ who was the only hope for robert there was nothing david that would or could do that would save robert but he only pleaded on the atoning blood of christ who indeed became our brother and who now intercedes for us at the throne of the father Therefore, once again, those verses that I read earlier, because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him. Because he always lives to intercede for them. Then we think about Christ Jesus as the only way to the Father. When God created the earth and put Adam and Eve as his children in charge of creation to rule over it, they had charge over everything. Therefore, what we read in Psalm 8, also quoted in Hebrews chapter 2, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You made him ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet. But it doesn't work. Doesn't take a rocket scientist to work out that we human beings have lost our original dominion. We don't control the fish of the sea or the birds of the sky we have thorns and thistles we know about earthquakes and floods and droughts and we experience pain and loneliness we have to be honest and say we've even lost control of ourselves and the net effect of our rebellion and sin is that we now taste death for the wages of sin is death that's why the author of hebrew states yet at present we do not see everything subject to him that is to us but above all we are cast out from the saving presence and care of your father in a way that Adam and Eve were taken out of paradise and they they couldn't come back unless God did something for them. We are not by birth part of God's family anymore like the children of Adam and Eve would be. We are not like that anymore by birth we are evil we are enemies of God and we don't deserve grace we hate God and if we can give if we are given the opportunity we'll even hate those close to us but that's not the end of the story implanted on calvary's hill is the cross of jesus christ that's why the author of hebrew writes then we see jesus and once again this little sentence becomes uh, begins with but but and you put the two sentences together and it goes like this just want to read that to you again in putting everything under him God left nothing that is not subject to him that's mankind yet at present we do not see everything subject to him but we see Jesus and that makes the difference but we see jesus now who is this jesus we need to only read chapter one of hebrews to understand first of all that he was appointed heir of all things the heavens and the earth are his second thing is through him god made the universe third thing he is the radiance of god's glory and the exact representation of the being of the father for he sustains everything by the power of his word that is our lord and he now reigns at the right hand of god in heaven this is the Jesus we read about in chapter 2. The angels obey and worship him. And he is named Son of God. And his his throne lasts forever. In fact, the Bible does not hold it back to call him God. About the Son he, that is God, says, Your throne, O God will last forever and ever. There heavens and earth will perish, but he will remain, and his years will never end. Every power and authority is under him. That is the Jesus this verse refers to. But we see Jesus. What did this Jesus do? He was made lower than the angels. That's what the Bible says. And there's only one other species with that designation. That is man we are made lower than the angels and what jesus did he who ruled from all eternity and all those things we we read about him his superiority over everything over the angels and he and we read in the bible how he would then when he was on the face of the earth he did what we couldn't do He commanded the fish, didn't he? Throw out your net on the other side, Peter. Peter said, no, we've tried that all night night long. Jesus said, well, do it. And he did it, and the net was full of fish. Who commanded the fish? And another day on the boat, when the wind was and the storm was over them so that they they would fear for their lives, Jesus looked at it and commanded it. He is the one who commands the blind to see, he is the one who command, uh, commands the, 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 the dead to, to to rise again. And he then says, "I will give it up." And he did. He was made lower than the angels and he suffered death we need to understand this verse that's verse 9 so that by the grace of god he might taste death for everyone so that by the grace of god he might taste death for everyone first of all he was made who made him god he was made lower who made him lower god the father because that was the plan of salvation that his son would come into this world and in selfless love give himself on command of the father god appointed him to be a savior man so God made him a man and God gave him the task of salvation to suffer and to die but now where does the grace of God come in in this verse did God give his son the grace to die no of course not God showed his grace to sinful rebellious lost sinners by giving his son to taste death because what sin does to us is that it gives us the deadly wound of which we will eventually die in hell lost for all eternity but we see Jesus who suffered death and he conquered death and he is victorious over the reason for our separation from God the only way to bring us to glory and restoration which will eventually be ours completely on the new earth the bible says it was fitting that God make Christ the author of salvation now that's once again one of those things in the bible that we don't understand why would it be fitting for the father to take his son who is eternal God with him and make him lower than the angels and then make him a man so that he would suffer and die it was fitting for God this expression carries the meaning of something to be proper Now is it proper for God to make his son a man and let him suffer and die? That's not what this says. But what it does say is it was the only way to save lost sinners. That's what it says. It was the only way, therefore it was proper. There was no other way in which Jesus could be our atonement he had to die he had to suffer for our sins now these these truths my dear brother and sister actually knock you between the eye when you read it over and over again I made it my my task this last week to every night before I went to bed I read Hebrews chapter 2. and today I did the thing that I actually read it in the Greek not that I know much about Greek. I, I, I've done my fair share of Greek, I must say. I, I sat four years in the first year. So, uh, as someone said, I, I hold an, an honors degree in Greek one. But that gave me a good foundation. But I made it. And when you read this in the, in the Greek and you, and you start to consult the dictionaries, you, you see the richness of it all that it was proper. Becoming is another word. And there's another word connected to this. Very remotely, I must say. But it is to say, it has something to do with being an ambassador. It has something to do with being an ambassador. An ambassador is nothing in himself. An ambassador represents the one or the government uh, which sent him. And so Jesus becomes God's ambassador by becoming like us and he died and he suffered for our sake this is what Jesus is to those who believe he is the door the way to the father the only way to the father he walked the path of salvation opened the door to heaven and no eternal life without him is therefore possible no life is possible without him now this is what jesus did if we can say this was his way of humiliation but there's also a way of his exaltation where the question is now that jesus is victorious through the cross we may ask what did he achieve by being our way and door to the father dying in pain and suffering on the cross and the bible is clear about it and i actually thought when i was halfway through this this should actually each one of these sections would justify a full sermon on it so i'm just going to skim over it first of all sinners are restored to glory in christ the bible uses words like restored to glory and being made holy and it actually refers to what happens because of jesus bringing salvation to us through his suffering and these are amazing words of sinners are said that they are restored to glory now, do we understand this? I, I don't think we really understand this, because we had no idea what it was like before Adam and Eve sinned. and We wouldn't know before, before this dispensation is gone, and, and a new one is given. But point is, in principle, we are restored in glory. We may know the father and as we will see we are now in the family of god this is the glory to be called this is glory to be called the sons of god again it does not mean that we now become gods like god is but we have never been like that and we will never be like that but we are his sons through whom everything exists you Can you put that together? you put that together? God, through whom everything exists, take us out of the dust and the slime and the mud of our rebellion and he restores us to glory and he says, you are my child. That in itself is something that you wonder how is that possible how is that possible we now because of the righteousness of Christ are called holy because our Savior is holy we do not attain holiness by good works or we do not become holy by some declaration of some church council some way I I, I honestly, and I say that with all respect to my friends in the Roman church, I I don't know where they get this idea to call people holy. And and, and that's only when they've done so many miracles and so many good things and then they they say they they make them a saint. I don't understand that. I, I honestly don't. But I can also not understand why it is that God would make me a sinful unholy, unworthy sinner, his child. And he calls me holy. He calls me holy. Why? He gives me a title. He gives me a title. That's our title, you know. When the Apostle Paul writes to some of the churches, he says he writes to the holy ones. To the saints. One of the churches he wrote to using these words were actually the corinthians and look by by no human standard were they holy but by god's standards he made them holy in christ as a matter of fact we can only be called these things because of our relationship with god being restored through christ jesus we become part of the family of god and the brother of who jesus and that's why it says he is not ashamed to call us his brothers it's not like us someone say you know we might have a brother he's in jail so we don't talk about him he is a bad person so we don't talk about him our lord jesus talks about us and he's not ashamed to call us his brother although we are bad to the bone what stuns me is the fact that it is said of jesus that He's not ashamed to call us his brothers we are ashamed we are ashamed to his holiness and offends him daily by the way we live his righteousness and his love is so perfect that the bible says he will only he will one day when he returns be the first to present us to god as his brothers his own family born in his blood you know when, when you when you arrive at a place you don't know people and there's someone he, he knows both parties and and then he starts introducing them and he says this is my brother and that's my brother-in-law and, and that's my good friend and he tells something about them his, his prayer and, and that's what I see in, in this verse when the Lord Jesus comes and when we appear before the throne of God our Lord Jesus would say this is the one that I saved on that day uh, and that one came to the Lord in faith oh he was oh no forget about his sins because that's forgiven uh you see he wouldn't be ashamed to call us his brothers the second thing is not only are we not only are we restored to God but he destroyed the devil that's what the Bible says. By his death, he destroyed him who holds the power uh, of death. That is the devil, and he freed those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Christ, in his death and resurrection, destroyed the prince of death, and now we sing it, sing it out: the last enemy is to be destroyed, and that's death. For he, God, has put. Everything under his Jesus' feet. And we sing the song of victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? And with Colossians chapter 2, we now declare with boldness having disarmed the powers and authority, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. We are by nature afraid to die. Death to us is the great unknown, and we fear the unknown, isn't it? But more than that, the devil just loves telling us that we might face an angry God who will punish us for our sins. And indeed, to face an angry God is something to fear. As the author of the same book, Hebrews, tells us, that it's a fearful fearful thing to fall in the hands of the living God. He also tells us that God is a consuming fire. But we see Jesus. And that changes everything. It was on the cross that he suffered in our place and for our benefit and now the fear of eternal punishment and hell are taken away. So don't fear to die. There's no reason Christian is the last person you can threaten with his life. Because his life is gain. That's Christ. And his death is to be with God. So why? So. Don't fall for that one. Tell the, tell the devil you destroyed. You destroyed. The cross destroyed your pair. Okay. It doesn't mean that he, he's not there. He's still there, but he's not there in a way that he can claim on the life of a Christian. Now, another thing. He intercedes for us as a merciful high priest. We can with boldness, boldness go to the throne of grace because we have a high priest who sympathize with us. I have to rush through this and now that he has secured the victory over sin and death and hell and satan now that he has procured a righteousness that satisfied the holiness of the father he sits at the right hand of god and there he intercedes for us john puts it this way if we claim we have not sinned we make him out to be a liar but if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense. This high priest was made like his brothers. This is us in every way. Yet he did not sin. And he atoned for the death of his people, the church. What a Savior. I conclude. The gospel is free it is by grace that we are saved we proclaim it freely but it's also true that on both ends of this glorious chapter in the bible we find very serious calls to believe and to pay attention lest we forever we are forever lost one is in verse 3 and it goes like this how shall we escape If we ignore such a great salvation, how shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? Therefore, I plead with you don't, never, don't ignore this gospel of the lord jesus christ the other warning is found in chapter three therefore holy brothers who share in the heavenly calling fix your thoughts on jesus and then in verse six christ is faithful as the son of a god's house and we are his house if we hold on to our courage and you can read through this book And you know, one of the themes of this book is don't ever slide back. And he's got that as a background of people who in the desert and the wilderness on the way from Egypt all the way up to the promised land. Disobeyed and they slid back. And they missed the land. We are his children if we hold courage. Don't ignore it. Please, don't ignore it. And if you've taken hold of it, hang on to it. Hang on to it. Because it's not the way we started the race that counts. It's the way we end the race that counts. May God give us the grace. Let us pray. Our Lord... We thank you for Jesus. We thank that he has become like us in everything through death and suffering. Help us, Lord, to take this gospel and not ignore it because the salvation it proclaims is a great salvation. And help us not to slide back but to hold on to our faith in Jesus. Amen.